Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Risk off, global stocks fall, gold prices rise as investors assess the coronavirus spread. G20 meets, finance ministers from the world's wealthiest nations vow to act if needed. And namaste Trump, India's Prime Minister Modi rolls out the red carpet for the US president. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Monday. Great to have you with us. Not looking so great, however, is the current mood across global markets. We are looking at steep losses for global stocks, a flight to safety, to quality in bonds, gold and the US dollar. That's the picture, as you can see, down red arrows here across the board. Let me walk you through it. We've got US futures indicating a more than 2.5% pullback at the open. That would then add to Friday's 1% losses. The Dow could give back the entire year-to-date gains at the open of the session today, but it's a global picture, as I've mentioned, in Europe. Italy capturing global attention this weekend, now reporting the highest coronavirus cases outside of Asia. The FTSE MIB in Italy down some 5%, pulling back from 10-year highs hit in just last week's trading. This feels like a classic knee-jerk reaction as investors simply try to gauge what the longer-term economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak will be. In Asia, Japan was on holiday. Chinese stock bucking the trends. They fell just slightly, but South Korea once again taking the heat. The cost be there tumbling more than 7% over the past five sessions. We've been asking if investors have simply been too complacent about the risk of the spread here and the impact of reduced travel, of supply chain disruptions on economic growth. Plenty of companies like Apple, if you remember last week, have warned already. Last week as well, Goldman Sachs also talked about the risk of a correction here for stocks. Today, we're seeing classic risk off. Stocks lower, oil lower, gold higher, bond yields down. That's the picture, and we'll discuss this throughout the show. But also some context here too, important. Investor Warren Buffett said earlier today that the long-term outlook for business has not fundamentally changed despite the tragedy going on with coronavirus. He says he's a stock buyer on balance important context. For today, though, it's the short-term uncertainty that's driving the price action. Let's get to the drivers and the latest on this story. Italy scrambling to contain the first major coronavirus outbreak in Europe. Confirmed cases spiking over the weekend to more than 200 in the country. 
five patients have lost their lives so far. Officials have yet to track down the first carrier of the virus. Melissa Bell is in Venice with the latest. Melissa, and of course, the carnival yesterday and over the weekend being cancelled there. Quite dramatic steps here to try and contain it. What more do we know? That's right, Julia. It was meant to last another couple of days. And although here on St. Mark's Square, you can still see some people coming out uh, in full costume. On the whole, for this time of year, at carnival time, this is a very quiet St. Mark's Square. The carnival is due to last till Tuesday. It ended, in fact, last night over those fears of the spread of coronavirus. And I think one of the things that's perhaps most worrying for Italian authorities is the speed of that spread. You mentioned those 219 cases confirmed a short while ago by Italian authorities. The fact is, Julia, that we were on less than five at the end of last week. So it's been very fast, a very sharp rise. And what we've seen as well is Italian authorities taking it extremely seriously. Venice still open for business, uh, still very much tourists, although on, on a lesser scale in terms of numbers going about their business, most of them without masks, remarkably. Uh, there are uh, il- at least 11 towns or villages in northern Italy that have been entirely locked down. And I think this is an important test as well, for it is the first time that a Western liberal democracy has said to take these kind of lockdown measures to try and contain the spread of the virus. So it's an important test for Europe, all the more so, Julia, because of the openness of the borders. France, Austria, all the countries around Italy keeping a very close eye on what's happening here. Yeah, you make a great point. I think it's the suddenness of this and the sharp spike that suddenly had everybody afraid, in addition to the lockdown measures, the quarantine measures in northern Italy that you mentioned. But we can see what appears to be tourists around you, even if, to your point, it's perhaps far quieter than it would have been. Life does go on, and I do think it's important to give that kind of context in this this situation too. I think one of the things we've been hearing also from people around here, especially many of the people who work here in the tourist industry, the people holding cafes and restaurants and so on, they're saying, in fact, that they haven't had enough information. So, yes, tourists are coming and going. No one quite knows whether they should be wearing a mask or not. And the fact is, you made an important point earlier, Julia, the fact that patient zero has yet to be tracked down is important for a number of reasons. It means that we don't know exactly how the virus got here. We don't know how fast it's spreading. And Italian authorities, although they've put the number at 219 for now, simply don't know exactly how far it has spread. So the next few hours and days will be extremely important as authorities try and figure out exactly who patient zero was, how the virus got here, and exactly how far it's gotten, even as they try and contain it. Julia? Yeah, and just on the quarantine measures, Melissa, I read over the weekend that schools, schools in Milan or in the northern part of Italy in Lombardy have been cancelled. Can you tell us exactly what details are happening with things like schools and, and events such as that? That's right. I mean, I mentioned a moment ago the carnival being brought to a close two days ahead of time. But uh, places like this, the Basilica in St. Marcus, St. Marcus Square, closed. All of the museums in the Veneta region of Italy have been closed as well. Schools, uh, museums, and then, of course, those quarantined areas. We're talking about some 100,000 people that are directly affected by these quarantines. So people who all of a sudden have found themselves in those 11 towns and villages unable to leave, in a sense, in a sort of open prison. And I think uh, it's going to be extremely interesting to 
see how uh, that pans out over the coming days. Have food supplies been properly organized? How comfortable are they in their quarantine zones? How long will it last? These are questions that for the time being, given the suddenness of all this, remain unanswered. Uh, in the meantime, of course, a sense of things being shut down, the carnival, the museums, but also sporting events, the number of uh, uh, league, league, soccer league, I'm sorry, uh, events have been cancelled, soccer games. So there is a sense of things grinding to a halt, but yet some uncertainty of how bad it's going to get, Julia. Yeah, until we get to patient zero, we've got to take uh, serious precautions here, which is clearly what the authorities are doing. Melissa, great to have you with us. Melissa Bell there. Thank you so much for that. Now to Asia, where South Korea is reporting over 830 coronavirus cases, representing the largest number of cases outside of China. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says China is right to start thinking about getting back to business in certain parts of the country. David Culver is live in Shanghai with the latest. David, David great to have you with us again. This is, this is an important point to make, I think, from the World Health Organization. They said this could be with China, with the world for months. To try and get back to business, get back to, to some degree of normal life here is important too. It's a very important point to make, I think, at this moment. And Julia, you get a feel for that just walking around, realizing how slow it's been getting back to business here at what is the, the business beacon, if you will, of China, Shanghai. I mean, we've noticed it's kind of trickled back and starting to come back to life, if you will. But the World Health Organization, to your point, they had just wrapped up a news conference just a few minutes ago, really. And it was interesting to see how much they praised the Chinese government for their handling of this, what they consider to be bold efforts in what some considered to be an extreme lockdown and containment effort. And it almost seems that they would suggest that if this were to be applied to other places like where Melissa was in Italy, that perhaps that could then curb the growth and spread of this virus. Now, the Chinese efforts have been rather tense in some places. They've caused folks to stay in their homes, to not be able to leave in many of uh, localities. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, really, who are impacted by this. But hearing what the World Health Organization said, it seems like this will be the start to stopping the spread of this virus. And they believe that China has really turned it around. I mean, the words were, were quite an endorsement. I'm going to read you a few things that were said in that, one of them being that China essentially has allowed for this decline and that the number of uh, cases going down is real. They go on to say this is falling and it's falling because of the actions that are being taken. Now, one of the things that we look at is going back to business. And that is something that is crucial to the Chinese economy and hence social stability here, Julia. You can't ignore that the two are uh, not mutually exclusive in all of this. And that's something that President Xi Jinping himself has echoed from the first time that he went on the front lines, if you will, two weeks ago today. I mean, that was something he was out saying, not only do we need to stop the spread of this virus, but we need to stabilize the economy. It is certainly top of mind for them. And one of the things that they're hoping will happen here, and it seems that they're hoping the World Health Organization will be part of the endorsement effort, and that is having other countries around the world loosen restrictions on trade and travel. No doubt they're speaking in part and perhaps primarily to the United States, because after the United States implemented their strict travel restrictions, several other countries followed suit. And that angered. In fact, it made the foreign ministry here furious because they felt like that essentially was a globally imposed quarantine on the Chinese mainland. 
and they have since tried to come out of that. And they're still feeling the economic crunch under that. And so they're hoping that in the next weeks, they even warn, as you point out, months to get back to normalcy, that things will start to loosen up and that businesses will start to come back online. Julia? Yeah, I remember that the Chinese authorities saying that the U.S. response had been excessive and that precipitated a greater degree of fear elsewhere in the world. David, what about the efforts to start relaxing some of the quarantine measures in Wuhan? Because there seemed to be some confusion over whether there had been the, the green light given by the central government in, in Beijing. What are we actually seeing and hearing from, from Wuhan now? There was confusion, and my team and I here in Shanghai, we were monitoring that, and one of the things we saw early on in the day was, oh, perhaps they are easing some restrictions, and, and the initial suggestion was that they were going to allow some folks who were not residents of Wuhan, who deemed to be healthy, to leave. That was quickly revoked, and they said that should not have been released, and so it seemed to have uh, kind of been countered pretty quickly. However, what we do know, Julia, and other parts of the country, they are starting to lower the level of global health uh, risk, if you will, that they've assessed, the emergency level that they've put in kind of the provincial level, the localities themselves. And by doing that, it essentially allows them to have a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more flexibility when it comes to allowing businesses to reopen. So it's all interconnected and it starts then at the local level. But they also, the World Health Organization, that is, acknowledge that by doing this, by coming back online, you're also opening up the possibility of more risk. That is to say that by getting back to normal, you could potentially allow for a little bit more of a surge of the spread of this virus to come back on board. So what's being done to stop that? Well, here in China, the World Health Organization points out they are still rapidly constructing capacity and healthcare systems for more beds and making sure that hospitals have that space to accommodate what could potentially be another surge in this. Yeah, it's such a great point, David. The theory of getting back to business perhaps is far easier than seeing it in practice and calibrating that, that shift. David Cover, thank you very much for that report there. All right, while investors grapple to understand the economic implications of the tragic outbreak, the toy industry is already seeing an impact on its supply chain. In fact, 84% of all toys sold in the United States actually come from China. Claire Sebastian joins us live from the New York Toy Fair. Claire, what are companies there saying to you about the implications and how they're trying to manage the supply chain impact that I'm sure they've already seen? Julia, there's no doubt this is a heavily exposed industry. That statistic uh, that you just said, I think it bears repeating, 84% of every toy sold in the U.S. comes from China. You only have to look at the labels on half the toys around here. Everything says made in China. Uh, people are worried. They are saying that, you know, the same thing we're hearing across a number of industries, uh, that, that factories are struggling to get back up and running. Workers are struggling with the travel restrictions. Even when the factories do get back up and running, sometimes they don't have the inputs, the materials uh, that they need. So I asked the CEO of the Toy Association, Steve Basib, just how long they've got until this becomes really critical for the industry. This is literally a day-by-day, case-by-case basis. We're in a short window here where it's not doing too much harm. If this continues into April, it'll begin to affect summer deliveries of summer toys. And then, of course, if it goes farther than that, then we're talking about the holidays. Most of the Christmas toys end up on the ocean during the summer, late summer, arrive here in the fall, end up in the Walmart Target warehouses and things like that right after. 
So this, is, as an industry, Julia, as you know, has already been buffeted by the closure of Toys R Us, by the threat of tariffs and, and some actual tariffs throughout last year. That threat then lifted slightly through the, the phase one U.S.-China trade deal, only then to be hit by this virus. They say that they're okay for the next month. After that, we might start to see deliveries, shipments being hit, and then it starts to trickle down to the consumer. Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating. It feels like we've only just passed Christmas, but they're already having to analyze and take steps ahead of next Christmas just to understand what the impact's going to be. I mean, you said they've got a month there before they really have to start worrying. When we're talking about 84% of toys in some way touching China as part of the supply chain, what's the ability to even redirect and perhaps get pieces or, or source goods, materials, toys from other places? It's difficult, Julia, as we, as we hear across multiple industries. The, the CEO of the Toy Association told me that, sure, they can diversify, but it would take a decade. Uh, some of the other countries where we've seen, you know, manufacturing ramp up, like Vietnam, they already, he said, hitting capacity when it comes to toys. Uh, and other countries like India that also manufacture toys, they're, they're already seeing struggles when it comes to finding the right materials and inputs that many of them come out of China. So it's the same story. Diversifying is great. Lots of people want to do it. Lots of people already started, but it takes time. You can't just reverse. Uh, the, the sort of two decades of, of manufacturing that we've seen in China ever since they joined uh, the WTO. And, and I think that's the challenge here is that this, we don't know how long this is going to last. It could be a short-term problem. Do businesses really want to take those kinds of decisions to shift production only then to find that everything gets back up and running a little sooner? Yeah, and this is just one sector. We've heard it now across the board. Shoes, toys, apparel, technology, huge supply chain links between these two nations and beyond, of course. Claire Sebastian, thank you very much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. U.S. President Donald Trump touched down in India's capital, New Delhi, a few moments ago on his first official visit to the country. A short time ago, he and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi were cheered by more than 100,000 people at a Namaste Trump rally at a cricket stadium. The president then headed to Agra, where he and the First Lady posed for pictures at the Taj Mahal, the 17th century monument to love. Kevin Liptak joins us now on this. Kevin, great to have you with us. Fascinating images. What a huge reception for, for President Trump as well in India. He certainly liked that beyond the broader strategic, perhaps, challenges that the two nations have to discuss. Yeah, today was really a lot about the style, not so much about the substance yet. Uh, the, one of the main reasons the president wanted to come to India was because Prime Minister Modi actually guaranteed that there would be these huge crowds to greet him up in the northwest part of the country, which is actually where Modi himself is from. And that actually came true. When the president touched it down, there were uh, cheering, cheering spectators who lined his motorcade route as he went uh, from the airport. He visited uh, the ashram that Mahatma Gandhi lived at for a while. Uh, he was barefoot as he uh, watched the uh, Gandhi's spinning wheel uh, be used. That's kind of an incongruous image for a person like President Trump. He went from there to this largest cricket stadium in the world, and the reception was really uh, sort of the scale of it was something that the president will have really appreciated. And in a lot of ways, it was very reminiscent of the political rallies that the president holds back home. The soundtrack that the viewers were uh, treated to but as they were waiting for the president it was the exact same thing that they play at the Trump rallies in the United States. The one thing that was different was how closely the president stuck to his script. There was no ad-libbing, and he didn't mention... Um, 
the Democrats back home or his perceived political rivals. So it was very uh, kind of a statesmanlike speech. And you could hear the size of relief from some of the president's advisors who wanted the speech to go well because they're so desperate to show the president and Modi as this uh, sort of inseparable pair trying to cast the United States and India as this inseparable ally alliance. And you could see that uh, as you're driving around here in New Delhi, uh, you see pictures of Modi and Trump on nearly every signpost. There are big signs that say two dynamic personalities, one momentous occasion. Of course, the two men are aligned in a lot of ways. Uh, they're both sort of nationalist, populist leaders. Uh, there are some differences on trade, of course. Those don't seem like they'll be resolved on this trip. But so far, the images are certainly something to look at, Julia. Yeah, I was going to ask you very quickly, actually, about trade. President Trump suggested that uh, Prime Minister Modi is a tough negotiator. And even he said it's not happening really before 2020. And that's what we assume here, surely. Yeah, and the president was kind of downplaying the prospects for a big mm. trade deal even before he got here uh, to India. The two sides seem just kind of too far apart for now, and the president will eventually have to turn his attention to campaigning. Listen to a little bit of what the president said about trade in his speech earlier today. We are in the early stages of discussion for an incredible trade agreement to reduce barriers of investment between the United States and India. And I am optimistic that working together, the Prime Minister and I can reach a fantastic deal that's good and even great for both of our countries. <laughs> Except that he's a very tough negotiator. <laughs> Probably not going to happen before the 2020 election. Kevin, great to have you with us. Kevin Liptak, live from Delhi there. More to come after this. Stay with First News. first move where global stock market weakness is the name of the game. We are bracing for a tough open. As you can see, there are the U.S. majors, the futures here indicating down more than 3% right now. The German Zetradax off some 4%. Milan, Italy, they're down some 5.8%. Important to mention here, I think, that simply what we're seeing here is a pricing in of the coronavirus impact. But we have seen that going on in certain sectors for more than a month. Brent crude already down 6.5% since mid January gold at seven year highs. The 10 year US bond yield fallen more than 35 basis points. That's 0.35%. Let's get some context. Max Kettner is a multi asset strategist for HSBC. Great to have you with us. Hello, good morning. This is classic risk off. Are you unsurprised or surprised? Uh, not really, because yeah. we've been so we've been in our multi asset allocation and we've been actually pretty cautious for months already. And uh, let me tell you what, we've been bashed quite a lot because you know you reach one all time high after the other. But I I think what people are really missing and what they've been missing for months really, even if you exclude, let's say, the last two, three sessions, actually treasuries have had a phenomenal run, right? So you, even if you were not investing in equities, but you were overweight in treasuries such as we were, you were actually making very decent money. This is really important. We've seen bond prices rising, yeah. bond yields coming down, and we've been saying for weeks as well, yeah. how can stocks be making fresh record highs when the bond market's saying, I'm really worried about growth? I think, I think look, that's one misconception right now is that actually there's a lot of people in markets right now saying the two markets are pricing something completely different. Yeah. I don't think 
that's the case. It's also a misconception that, for example, 2019, a lot of people were saying, oh, the correlation between bonds and equities has been so much on the rise. It's actually been pretty steady. What has changed is the sensitivities. So what, what that means is, like, if the S&P went down a percent, actually bonds were rallying big time, right? right. Whereas if we got one all-time high after another in equities, bonds weren't really selling off that much. So what you did have is, like, you had the most perverse form of a central bank put. Basically, the market saying, you know what, if there's a bit of a dip in, in, in equities, we are going to absolutely flock into treasuries because we know the Fed's going to save us. Because the Federal Reserve or yep. other central banks, which are already stimulating, yep. will cut rates or will make the right noises. And yep. that's been the assumption. Yes. Has anything changed about that? Not really. No. Not really. Actually, when we look at these and when we look at these sensitivities, that's still the case. It's still the case. Look at the, look at the last four weeks, really. Look at the first initial risk-off wave with Corona. That week, you know, Treasury yields were down 30 basis points, right? So and the week after, you had equities all the way down, all the way up. So in, in that vein, and very quickly, because we'll come back yeah. to you after the market open, is this just a temporary thing? Do you think we get buyers coming back in, or could we be in for a more sustained pullback here? I, I think Bobby? there will be, I'll, I think the um, sell-off had a bit, has a bit of legs. I'm quite concerned that all I've heard so far this morning is, oh, buy the dip, this is overdone, uh, this is, you know, I've only heard really things that comfort us. I haven't heard anyone who's saying, look, you know what, we're all been assuming a V-shaped recovery. Maybe that's not going to happen. I haven't heard that so far. Well, we're going to hear it after this when we get the market open. Max is going to stay with us. The opening, opening bell is next. Stay with us. We're back after this. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange this morning and the opening bell this morning. Not a pretty picture. As expected, we can see steep losses for the U.S. majors. We've got the Dow off some 2.8% early on in the session. The S&P 500 now losing some 3% early few minutes, of course, in the session. But right now, we are seeing significant weakness, adding to the losses that we saw on Friday's session. We were also talking about the safe havens as well earlier on in the show. The U.S. dollar rallying some three-tenths of one percent. That's the dollar index that you're seeing. Trading now at four-month highs. Another check of Treasuries, too. We were just discussing the shift that we've seen into bond markets. A big drop in yields right now. We've got the 10-year bond yield at 1.37 percent. 30-year yields falling to fresh all-time lows there. A brief look as well at some of the stocks getting hardest hit earlier on in the session. As expected, you've got to look for the supply chain names. Apple down some 5.8 percent. Big exposure, of course, to China. Micron technology off almost 7 percent. The airlines, the travel industry, American Airlines down some 7 percent as well. And ExxonMobil Energy, the oil prices are also under pressure today. So the energy names also getting hit. HSBC's Max Kettner is back with me now. We were saying it earlier, classic risk off. You were also saying you could perhaps see a further pullback here from for, for the stock markets in particular. 
Look, I think what markets don't like and don't like the most is uncertainty, right? And all we can say right now is that we know pretty much nothing, right? We know that activity in China hasn't returned to normal. When we look at all these high-frequency indicators, uh, migrant worker movement, coal production, all, the, all this kind of stuff. Use. Yeah, all these kind of like daily data. We know this is much, much more subdued than it should be for this time of the of the year, right? So we know that the resumption of work is much, much, much more slowly than we actually would have thought. The problem is now is the the uncertainty channel, the confidence channel. That's not something that you can just put into a statistical model and then there you go, there's a number coming out and you know, you can say X, it's the effect of X percent. I mean, many of the analysts were coming out at the beginning yeah. of this process and saying, look, the likelihood is we can compare with SARS, there'll be a V-shaped recovery. This situation already in terms of numbers is worse than SARS was, and the, the importance of the Chinese economy is that yeah. much bigger. No, look, I was very, I was early on, I was very, very opposed against um, actually comparing it to SARS. If you think purely statistically, if you ever run a model, if you ever run a regression model on one single data point, let me tell you what, the output won't be pretty, right? It just doesn't work. I mean, it's you can't take one single data point from more than a decade ago and just use it as a template where, you know, as you said, China is completely different, the world economy is looking different, the state of the world economy is different. Do we also need to separate, though, the short term, the medium term and, and the longer term yeah. here because yeah. the World Health Organization was saying even today, look, China does need to be yeah. looking at getting back to work because this is something perhaps we will be dealing with for, for many months. Yeah. You can't just stop. Yes. I mean, if, you, if we... Um just from a market perspective, if we sort of separate the short term from the long term perspective, you know, the problem is the more bonds rally, the more that sensitivity that we were talking about early on, right? The message the, that yeah, that sends. The more, the more that drags on and the more that drags the, uh, yields lower, that basically means the more attractive equities get, right? From a relative perspective, because you just can't buy those bonds anymore. You look in Europe, right? You can't just keep buying bonds at minus 60 then at some point from a longer term perspective. You need to discern it from the, from the short term perspective. If you think about, you know, Bunz having still another leg lower, 20, 30 basis points over the next couple of weeks, that's still a very decent trade. It's the same in treasuries, but but longer term, and that's a different picture. That's what brings buyers back in. But your message right now to at least those that are dipping their toes in shorter yeah. term is just be very, very cautious. Yes, absolutely. For me, it's, it's really something where I'm saying, look, this is an uncertainty that we cannot detect at the moment. We cannot put a number on at the moment. And the problem is, it is coming exactly at that point of time where we thought, Oh, now we see all this financial condition easing from 2019 working its way through to activity in 2020. Remember, that was the idea that we had all this easing in 2019 and in early 2020, that will help activity to sort of propel higher, right? About, and that's not happening. Really. What about the impact of the strength of the US dollar as well? Because yeah. that has global implications yes. for money invested in emerging markets, yeah. for emerging market bonds, for emerging market stocks. Yeah. Just talk us through that linkage and, and how well, worried you are by that. What we found, and it does mean that when the dollar is strengthening and strengthening massively as such as it has in the last couple of weeks, it really puts a lid on risk assets. It puts a lid on any kind of reflation trades, right? Because it is disinflationary for the US economy. It puts a lid on the reflation trades. It puts a lid on the risk on trades. As you said, it puts a lid on EM against DM trades, right? It puts, lid, yeah, so it, it, it puts a lid on emerging market currencies, for example. You said right? massive, and I just want yeah. to give some context. We are seeing the dollar at four and a half month highs. Yeah. 
Is that massive, or you just mean it's it's risen a long way over yeah, a short that's, period that's of what time? I, I think that's what I, I wouldn't necessarily talk too much about the level. What I would be thinking about is the change. Right. So if you think about what's been happening over the last few months, right? Not necessarily just where the dollar sits right now, right? We're not talking just about the level. Exactly. But what's been happening over the last two months is a pretty strong um, strengthening. You know, we've also, if I bring it back to the United States, we've had guests on here saying, look, actually, lower interest rates, mortgage rates based off a 30-year rate are yeah. all-time lows, energy prices are coming down. These are all good things for the U.S. consumers. Yes. So yes. there will be a... Yeah. I don't want to use the word V-shaped recovery, but there will be a positive kicker. Um, yeah. It will come at some point. I think you're completely right, and I think that's where consensus is also right. It will come at some point, but that would probably be then uh, following a much, much deeper move down first, right? right? Because we can't have it both ways. We can't say on the one hand, you know what, if yields go down, that's really great for the consumer. But actually, if bonds sell off and yields go up, that's actually also really great because it, you know, it signals that the consumer and the economy is doing great. We can't have it both ways, right? No. So you have to have a bit of a leg lower, probably more panic, more selling inequities in risk assets in general. And at some point, that yield cushion will cushion the downside. I'm going to put you on the spot here because we are down, what, just shy of 3% for the down yeah. here. We lost around 1% on Friday. So we're about 4, 4.5% away mm. from record highs, even if within that, many stocks weren't hitting record yeah. highs. How much more downside do you think we could see before people go, okay, maybe we've priced enough yeah. worry yeah. here. Um, so I think, just putting a number out there, like yes. I could, it could be another 5%, right? Just right. just give or take. Yeah. But I think the more important picture is that it's just what you asked again, right? It's like, oh yeah, when do people start thinking about buying the dip? Actually, like we've been talking before, that's what people already are talking about, yeah, right? Are. We've got two weekdays and all people are concerned about is, oh my God, that's a rally. dip, right? That's a dip, I need to go back in. That's probably not the right time right now. No, I know. Keep be cautious. And of course, we don't want to take it away from the uh, tragedy of the broader outbreak, yes. of course, as well, by, uh, by talking about this. But great to get your perspective, Thank Max. You so Fantastic much. to have you on. Max Kettner there of HSBC. All right, we're going to take a break. Plenty more to come, though, on the show. Up next, Uber and Kareem are now a team with plans after Uber put down more than $3 billion to buy its Middle Eastern rival. The founder and CEO of Kareem tells us why his company is worth the price tag and what their ambitions are. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing once again in the early part of the trading session this morning in New York. We are seeing significant selling pressure on the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. Right now, we're off some 2.8%, but we're oscillating, as you can see, at the lows of the session. Down some 2.9% for the Dow, 830 points so far. Significant fears in light of the spike in cases over in Italy, huge pressure on the uh, European session as well. The German markets off more than 5%. We've got the Italian markets, a similar story there. So some real fears permeating in global stock markets as a result of just trying to assess the economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak. We will continue to keep an eye on those markets. For now,
now, ride-hailing app Kareem has reached a destination many would envy, a $3 billion deal with Uber. But Kareem says this is just the beginning of the journey and plans to become the region's everyday super app. Vanessa Shekhar is CEO and co-founder of Kareem, and he joins us now. Fantastic, sir, to have you with us on the show. We will talk about your ambitions and your plans for Kareem going forward. But I just want to ask, I appreciate that actually in the Middle East you've been relatively insulated so far from the coronavirus outbreak. Are you seeing any impact on consumer sentiment just in terms of the numbers at this stage? So as you mentioned, uh, Julia, we uh, operate from uh, all the way to Morocco, to Pakistan, in this larger region that we call the Greater Middle East, North Africa. And so far, we have been relatively insulated. Fortunately, our captains, our customers, and our colleagues are fine. The only one softness that we see is in an emerging business that is providing delivery services to e-commerce companies in the region. And due to some disruptions of global supply chain, we're seeing some softness in that business. But otherwise, uh, it's largely uh, on track, largely fine. Yeah, we have to continue to watch that. I know you're in an evolutionary phase, as you mentioned, a, a ride-hailing app across many different countries in the Middle East. But your focus is now looking at retail delivery. It's about payments in particular. And when I was in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi, we were talking about the low credit card penetration in particular. So for me, payments for you as, a, as an option for the company looks pretty lucrative. Talk to me about how you're developing that as a focus going forward. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as you rightly pointed out, um, credit card penetration in the region is very, very low. And uh, if you look at just our own data, uh, we do 90% uh, of all the transactions that we do daily on cash. Uh, as inconvenient as it is, as the challenges that exist with cash. So it's largely cash-based economies, and this large cash, cash domination is uh, preventing the growth of digital services in the region. So uh, if you look at what we've built with Kareem over the last eight years, we've built a ride-hailing business, we've built a food delivery business, we've built a bicycle-sharing business, we've built a bus business in almost 100-plus cities in the region, and we've been able to overcome some of the shortage or uh, you know, lack of digital payment options. And the infrastructure that we have built to conduct our own business is now being packaged into something that we can offer other businesses in the form of a super app where we allow other businesses in the region to come onto our super app and leverage the payment capability that we have built in this larger region uh, that is able to convert cash uh, collected by our captains, by our drivers in the region into digital payments that can then be used for purchases online on digital platforms. So that is the first step uh, of uh, what we're doing with what we're calling Kareem Pay. The next step is uh, once we've done payments, uh, then start offering financial services in an accessible way to the 35 million customers that are using our platform and, 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 and provide them a platform that allows them to become financially inclusive and become a part of this um, global economy and become a part of this digital global economy that is growing fast. Yeah, if I think of a, a similar thing in Southeast Asia, Grab offering financial services initially to their drivers and then looking to expand. I know you provide medical insurance to, to drivers in Pakistan, which is an example, I think, perhaps of, of growing that and supporting your drivers and then, and then moving beyond. Is the aim then to be a sort of equivalent challenger bank in the region, in the, in the Middle East, and who is your competition? Because I'm kind of struggling to think of who it would be. Yeah, 
the, the opportunity, Julia, is, uh, is actually much, much bigger than, uh, than a digital bank. If you look at this region that we operate in, from Morocco to Pakistan, the consumer spend in this region is $1.8 trillion, and only 2% of that spend goes online today. And we all know, living in this region, that uh, offline commerce is full with challenges. And there are basic challenges when you go to a store to buy something, the basic trust doesn't exist for you to know that the product that's being given to you is the right quality, is being offered at the right price. And we actually believe that the larger opportunity that we can go after, being literally the only large-scale digital player in this region, is a larger consumer internet opportunity in the region. And the way that we'll go after this opportunity is by leveraging this platform that we have built on the back of ride hailing, on the back of food delivery in this region to start uh, bringing all of our services on a single app called the Super App and then basically open up the Super App to anyone else that wants to offer services to their customers digitally and provide them with all of the logistics and payment capabilities that are required to deliver services to people digitally. So the opportunity yeah. in our mind is, is a lot, lot larger than just a bank. It's a larger consumer internet opportunity moving off from moving from offline to online and all the capabilities required for it. It's, it's incredibly exciting, but it also takes investment and, and a huge shift just the evolution that you're talking about as, as a business and the timing. I mean, we're just watching the, the Dow today down some, what, 2.7%. There's a greater sensitivity, I think, particularly for unicorns post WeWork to focus on profits and to talk about when you're going to get the business to a point where you are showing profitability. Are you more focused on that today than perhaps you've ever been? And what does the path to profitability look like for Kareem here? So, uh, so if you if you may allow me, we started the profitability journey a little bit earlier than uh, than some uh, other companies that may be based in other parts of the world, just because the funding environment for companies like us in this region was never that great. So uh, we have a DNA that is very frugal, that is very focused on efficiency, and already uh, some of our largest markets are already profitable in the core ride hailing business. And that journey continues. That journey continues with us focusing on profitability in the remaining markets through, um, through more efficiency in dispatching, more efficiency in automation, through also uh, uh, a better uh, focus on growth in a more sustainable way. And the super app that I spoke about earlier also allows us to acquire customers onto the platform once and then offer multiple services to that customer. So in our view, the super app is not just a growth story and a way for us to grow and expand into this big market, but to sort of achieve sustainable growth. The same customer can be offered multiple services. And we have seen based on some initial testing that as they start to use multiple services from us, their retention level goes up, their engagement with the platform goes up, their trips or orders per week on the platform go up. So we actually believe that the super app and that evidence is there already uh, can actually allow us to grow and capture this large consumer internet opportunity on a sustainable basis. Mm. It's going to be great to watch. Sir, come back and talk to us again soon, please. The CEO and co-founder of Kareem there. Thank you for that. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing once again for markets. Significant pressure across the board, picking up the thread. It's a global story. Pressure on stock markets, a flight to safety and things like gold and in bonds. Right now, as you can see, the Dow off some 2.6%. The Nasdaq underperforming off 3%. More to come. Stay with First Move.
Welcome back to First Move. The G20 nation signaling readiness to act on the coronavirus amid growing fears over the global economic impact. John Defterius is in Riyadh and with those leaders for us. John, great to have you with us. Clearly global markets today really showing a degree of nervousness about what the impact can be. What have the G20 leaders been saying today? Well, you know, Julie, I was looking at the numbers that you were talking about there, what we're seeing on Wall Street, but it seems to be four as the unlucky number, right? We have had a loss of nearly 4% in South Korea. That's telling us something. And we're seeing losses in the commodity market of better than 4.5%, for example, uh, for oil. And I have to say, being on the ground here, the mood has changed radically uh, in the last 24 hours. And what do I mean by that? On the arrival here in Saudi Arabia, you see health authorities with a mask on, with gloves, taking Asian passengers off the flight and setting them aside. We had not seen that in the Middle East because of the alarm we're seeing from uh, Iran. And we have to think in the context of the G20, uh, Asia matters. It represents a quarter of the membership overall. And I think they influenced the communique by the close of business uh, Sunday night. For example, the host country, Mohammed al-Jadan, is the finance minister. And as you suggest in your lead in here, he said, if necessary, uh, we are opposed to pounce, uh, basically to take multilateral action if needed. Let's take a listen. And we all agreed that all countries and all states would be ready to intervene as needed to face these risks. And it would be a multilateral intervention, including the World Health Organization, of course, to monitor these risks and be ready to use the relevant policies as needed. Mohammed al-Jadan, once again, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia. And circling back again uh, to Asia, we had the finance minister of Japan saying, look, if you have room to provide stimulus in your budgets right now, I say don't wait for multilateral action. I'd say act now was a message from uh, Tara Aso. So it's interesting to hear the Asians saying they're at the front end of the storm right now, Julia, and let's not wait to see this play out in Europe, in the United States. Uh, let's get ahead of the curve, not behind it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You and I have been debating the need for greater coordination in action here, or synchronicity at least. We've discussed that we've already got two-thirds of the world's central banks providing stimulus here. I guess the question is, as we watch global assets weaken here, even from record highs to your earlier point, John, um, whether some degree of noise is required from central banks again to step up here and say, look, we remain ready to take action if we deem it necessary. Well, you know what? I think it's important for us at this stage with the sell-offs that we're seeing right now, Julia, uh, to read between the lines and just take the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, uh, Kristalina Georgieva. She was in Dubai exactly a week ago, said the crystal ball is clouded right now, but she's expecting a V-shaped recovery from China. Now, the briefing in Riyadh here uh, during the G20, she said that the, the growth in China could slow down to 5.6% from 6% this year. That is a dramatic change over the week before. And then there's this nationalist tendency that we're hearing right now from uh, Bruno Le Maire, for example, of France, saying we've learned a lot from this crisis in China that we're overly dependent on the second largest economy in the world when it comes to aerospace, yes. big pharma, and technology. That is the big concern we see today, staking out positions, yeah. Julia.
You raised such a great point. And the World Health Organization, of course, saying try and get back to business to some degree because you're going to be dealing this with many months. John Defteris, thank you so much for that. A final look at what we're seeing for U.S. price action weakness across the board, a flight to quality and safety. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with more. Stay with us. You're with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.